Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have. Amen. Today, we hear the rest of the story. <laughs> Jonah 4. <clears throat> but this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarnish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what, what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? and also many animals. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just completely lose it? Uh, you may not, not, not know this about me, but I do have a temper. My family definitely knows this about me. I'm a very cool, calm uh, presence. And then all of a sudden, there comes a moment, I don't know where it is, right? But all of a sudden, I reach my tipping point, and I, like, blow up. I don't know what it is. In middle school, I remember my parents were having a conversation with me. And I was listening, very cool, calm, collected, taking it all in. And I reached a point in the conversation where I just was done. I went into my room, and I punched my closet as hard as I could, and I knocked the doors off the hinge. And my dad was like, what did you do? And I was like, I don't know. You know, but it was just one of those moments where I just, I, I had to get it out. I didn't know what to do. And I wonder if you've ever had a moment like that, where you were uh, cool, calm, collected, and then all of a sudden you, you lost it. You just couldn't deal with it anymore. We've been in the book of Jonah for a while now. 
In chapter 1, Jonah hears God's voice and is called to go to Nineveh. He says, I ain't doing it. And he goes to Tarshish. And he gets thrown overboard, kind of on his own doing. A fish is provided by God. The fish comes and swallows Jonah. Jonah feels completely alone and alienated from God in chapter 2. Jonah repents of his sort of decision and is put out on dry land again by the fish. Chapter 3 begins by God calling Jonah and saying, I told you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, fine, I'll do it. And so he goes to Nineveh in chapter 3. He walks into the city. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he walks out of the city. And God relents from destroying Nineveh. This leaves Jonah in a weird spot. Yes, chapter 4 ends that way. Are you not concerned about the animals? Next book of the Bible. That's how it goes. <laughs> That's how it ends, right? Jonah is on this hill. But let's start from the beginning. Chap- uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased. Isn't that polite? It's so nice. The Hebrew doesn't really say greatly displeased. Yes, it can be translated as greatly displeased, but it embodies something else entirely other than displeasure. It's typically translated as displeased, but it literally means to tremble, to shake. And it's almost as if Jonah is so angry, he is shaking. Another word that is often used to translate this word, yara, which means angry or shake, is evil. Jonah perceives God's actions as evil, and Jonah is shaking with anger. Jonah is not happy. He's not being a very good Christian. He's very upset about God. He's very upset about God's actions, and he is furious. A literal reading and translation from this would read like this. But Jonah became so violently upset that his inner character thought what was happening was evil. So to be clear, God turns from anger and Jonah turns to anger. It's powerful disposition between God's character and Jonah's character in chapter 4. Perhaps Jonah has been holding back his real emotions so far, but he can take it no longer. Because in verse 2, there are a bunch of descriptions about God's character. God is a gracious God. He's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. So if we had suspected why Jonah was upset in chapter 3, it is made abundantly clear to us and blatant in chapter 4. Jonah is upset because he knew from the very beginning God was going to relent. This is seen all over the Old Testament. Exodus, Numbers, Nehemiah, Psalms, Joel, Nahum. It is in more than one place in the Old Testament. I remember sitting in high school geometry, which is just a a practice in patience, I suppose. And I was sitting there in this class, and I got into a theological conversation because I was going to be a pastor one day. And so I began talking with this person behind me. He said, you know what? I really, really like the New Testament God, this loving, caring God. But I don't quite understand the God of the Old Testament who's always so vengeful and wrathful. Yes, there is sanctioned killing in the Old Testament. We need to come to grips with that. But that is not a full picture of who God is. Jonah knows this. 
Jonah seems to be upset about these divine deficiencies in God's moral character. Jonah is mad that God is gracious, loving, relenting from anger, merciful. We see it all over the Old Testament. This Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. Jonah doesn't like it one bit. He wants to go back to his near-death experience in verse 3. A world where God rescues the Hebrew people from certain death is okay, but a world where God rescues the enemy, that is not okay with Jonah. God can't rescue foreigners. They're not his chosen people. This is very upsetting to Jonah. I'm assuming it would be upsetting to the Hebrews. In verse 2, Jonah had mentioned that He's in his own country. When I was in my own country, that's why I didn't want to go over there. He slips in to nationalism sort of talk. Us versus them. Us versus them. I don't want to go to them, to those people over there. They're different. They don't deserve it. And how does God answer Jonah? How does God sort of uh, come to grips with Jonah's questioning? What is God's answer for Jonah's demand for death? It's silence. It's nothing. In verse 4, Jonah's wish, wish is answered by silence. And it's a good thing, too, y'all. You ever pray really hard for something and just get some silence? Jonah is praying really hard that God will do something, and God does nothing. Okay, and now i got to pause for a moment. Because if you're like me, you grow up thinking that the Bible is a cute storybook, Right? Sometimes it gets a little too real when you read the text and you wrestle with the Bible in a real way. And you read the story of Jonah and you go, this is complicated. Right? My, my son next to his bed has a storybook Bible. And recently, probably because we've been teaching on Jonah here, he said, I want you to read the story of Jonah. And I said... Sure, let's do it, right? So I pull open the story book of Jonah. Beautiful pictures, right? There's a big old fish. It's multicolored. Eats Jonah up. Yum, yum, yum. Right? Swallows him whole. And then, like, I did the story. And you know where it ends? It ends with God forgiving all the Assyrians. And then, as the, you know, as the pastor have to go, they left out chapter 4. Like, it's totally not in the story Bible. Like, it just, that's not where it ends. Jonah wants to die, God doesn't answer him, and Jonah's left to kind of fume and sit and wrestle and struggle with himself on top of this mountain. So uh, I told Emery, I said, that's not really how it ends. <laughs> and he goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, Jonah's really mad at God. And then Emery goes, well, that's silly. And I said, I, I, th I, th I think you're right, son. I think you're right. I think it is silly. I mean, we have expectations about this being a cute little story. And sometimes it just gets a little too real for us. And so Jonah, right, in, in verse 5, he, uh, he takes off his floaty. He goes over. He builds himself a little booth, right? And he says, I know what God's going to do. God's going to relent and destroy them. So let me just sit right here and wait, right? Forty days is a long time to wait. Jonah decides that he's got 30-some days left. Not a big deal. He'll build a little booth like they would for the festival of booze in his culture and time. Sort of shelters him from the oppressive heat of the region. 
and he sits on top of this hill, a good vantage point to watch this kind of Sodom and Gomorrah overthrowing, right? He's waiting to see what would become of the city. Who knows, maybe God will relent because God is fickle, right? God's whims can be changed. Verse 6. A vine is appointed, kind of like your pastors, uh, to come. And uh, it is uh, appointed, it is provided, much like the storm was provided, like the fish was provided. And what happens? Jonah doesn't want to die anymore. All of a sudden, Jonah has the good life, right? His mood is transformed because of the unexpected. Jonah says, what more could you want? I've got the good life now. I have a roof over my head. God's favor is literally growing green around me. I have a front seat ticket to the destruction of my foes. We call it Facebook. Uh, in Jonah's day, it was this, this hill. You know, Jonah calls it this uh, city, and he's so excited to see what's going to happen. And Jonah is as happy as a clam. What more could he want? In verse 7, God is not done appointing and providing things. A worm, a fish, a storm, a wind. And I love that word, that the worm attacked the plant. I, see, I just picture this caterpillar viciously gnawing at a vine, uh, as if it's determined to destroy. When we pull up from what is happening behind the scenes for Jonah, it's just a small-scale <coughs> comparison, isn't it? The plant, God provides. The worm, God provides. The plant is destroyed, much like Nineveh was going to be destroyed. In a hard, hard, hard lesson is that God is paradoxically both the deliverer and the destroyer. God is the alpha and the omega. We worship a whole God, a God who is both provider, destroyer, alpha, and omega, beginning and end. And I'm not sure that Jonah worships a whole God. I'm not sure Jonah gets it. Jonah likes to worship the God who blesses. Jonah likes to worship the God who takes his side, the God who provides, so long as that provision is beneficial for him. If at any time God decides to not benefit Jonah, Jonah doesn't seem to know that God. If God delivers Jonah from the storm, if God delivers Jonah from the fish, that is awesome. But others, not so much. And I don't know if you've had a, ever had a moment like that where the jacket comes off and you say, you know what, God? This is not awesome anymore, right? You get a little upset. You might roll up the sleeves. You're going to have a little conversation with God. You're going to go to the throne room, and you're going to pound on that dude's chest until he listens to you. I've had some conversations like that with God in my come-to-Jesus moments where I come to Jesus, right? And I say, you're doing it wrong, right? And you got something to tell the man, right? Jonah's got something to tell the man. He is upset. And it is in verse 3 that Jonah questions God's right to deliver. It is now here with the plant that Jonah questions God's right to destroy. And Jonah is not happy. Jonah is not God. 
He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Verse 9, Jonah, to Jonah, the way that Jonah sees God, God has only demonstrated how fickle and incomprehensible God is. One minute he brings comfort, and one minute he brings destruction. It is too much for Jonah. God's ways are just beyond him. That's right, Jonah, they are, but they're beyond him, and he is upset. Verse 10 and 11, in a book about a prophet with only one prophecy, the last words are God's. The last words are God's. God shows where the real absurdity in all of this lies. Jonah is filled with compassion toward the plant, yet remains hard-hearted toward the entire population of a city. God, uh, Jonah has shown that he cares for one small part of God's creation, but yet he fails to care for a large mass of people. The, inconsist the inconsistency lies with Jonah and not God. Even more, the Ninevites cannot be held morally accountable because they lack the comprehension. Their left hand doesn't know what their right hand does. They don't know God, Jonah. They don't know me. That's your job, to show me to them. And then finally, I think it's a little bit of humor. Maybe it's not. I don't know. God says, and Jonah, if you don't care about the, the people, maybe you should care about the cows. <laughs> Maybe you should just care about the cows, Jonah, because you certainly don't care about the people, do you? And Jonah goes, uh, never really thought about it that way. Thanks, God. I'm going to stay here for a while and think about it. And he does. And so where does that leave Jonah? Well, remember in 2 Kings that he was prophesied. Uh, he was told that Jonah would do all these prophecies and that Israel's borders would expand. That's not the lot, as it turns out. Jonah really sees himself sort of as aiding the enemy, as helping the enemy. This rubs up against his idea of himself as a prophet of God. It rubs up against the idea of himself as a Hebrew. It rubs up against the idea of what he had in mind when God said, go and be a prophet. He has to come face to face with his partial view of God. He has to come face to face with his own limiting view of his call. He has to come face to face with his anger. And he has to come face to face with his anger towards not only foreigners, but God and himself. And himself. Anger is complicated. Not only do we direct it towards other people, sometimes we direct it towards God, and sometimes we fail to recognize that we are upset with ourselves. And maybe as Jonah sits on top of that hill, things didn't go as planned, he needs to recognize that he is angry with himself. So, some concluding thoughts about Jonah. Some takeaways. I personally think that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. I think Jonah wrote it so he can say, learn from my mistakes. Learn something about what happened. What can my life teach you about God and what can it teach you about yourself? 
God has every right to show mercy to all nations and all people. And we, like Jonah, have no right at all to think that some are intrinsically more deserving than others. We have a choice either to copy Jonah's embarrassing and ridiculous anger, as my son points out, or see the world as God sees it, that the world is greatly in need of God's mercy. What right do we have that God should favor us and not others? It's a part of our heritage that we believe that God's grace goes out to all people and beckons them closer and closer to him. It's at the table that we say, this is not a Methodist table. It is the Lord's table. It is open to all. God's grace does not know bounds. It is open to all for all. And Jonah is wrestling with that. And I think we still wrestle with it today. We want God to bless us, to love us, but others, eh, I'm not so sure. And when God does, that challenges us and it challenges our perception of God. And the good news is that's the power of the Holy Spirit to move and shape and change our hearts and our perception as we wrestle with Scripture. And so my prayer today is that the Spirit will continue to shape and change us that we would be challenged to see God's love, not only in just us, but we'd be challenged to see God's love in our communities, in the world, and we would see that God does not discriminate when it comes to love. And all people are valuable and have inherent worth and dignity because they are made in the image of God, and God loves them as God loves us. And may it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.